This morning I'm going to read the first 11 verses of uh, John's Gospel, chapter 16. You can follow along on the screen if you would like. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now that I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? But, I, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. May God help us to understand this is most precious word. True love always leaves something behind. I began thinking about this idea of love leaving something behind. A number of years ago, you know, you have these guys, these days where your wife says, let's watch a movie, and you know she means some romantic, gooey, drippy movie that really there's no action, nobody dies. Actually, this movie, somebody does. But you're not really looking forward to the movie. But once you get in it and you recognize the message is being communicated, you think, wow, this isn't that bad. I'm not going to tell her that because then we'll see another one of these. But in the movie, uh, P.S. I Love You, there's a man who is going to die and leave his wife. Now, I probably, because I told you the name of the movie, you poor guys who have not seen it will be watching it soon (laughs) on Netflix coming your way. But in the movie, this husband dies and on the one month anniversary of his death, his wife receives a letter that he wrote, obviously, before he died. And in it, he's talking about their life together, but her life into the future. And he ends every letter with, P.S., I love you. But he also asked her to do something for him. And so every month, because he writes 12 of these. Sorry, guys. The fact that he writes seven letters would be a challenge for us. But he writes her seven love letters after that would be uh, delivered to her one month on the anniversary of their wedding 
after his death. And each time, he's taken her a step further. Uh, in one letter, he talks about her taking a trip to Ireland and where he's originally from, and she goes to Ireland, and he tells her in another letter to go to this particular pub uh, where he used to play music. He was a musician, and she meets his best friend that he grew up with and falls in love with him. The whole purpose, you can see why the dang thing's so good. (laughs) I'm just struggling telling you this. I have to check my man card back in. But you can see how how much he thought about how his wife would never move past her memory of him if he didn't take her on a journey to a life without him. Love always leaves something behind. True love leaves something behind. Even Al and Nancy Strong's story for us at EP over the last 30 plus years, they are leaving something behind. A rich legacy where dozens of us have been profoundly impacted by their love for us. That shaped itself into a, a fresh start slash divorce recovery a ministry and later by a marriage a seminar where uh, you're matched up with an older couple to mentor you in the process of getting ready for marriage. Where dozens and dozens of our people have been impacted by that kind of love. But there have been hundreds who have been impacted by their willingness to serve the Lord in this way Because as great as those two ministries are here at EP, they have been far more impactive out in our community. Among people who who were facing both the worst days of their life and on the other end, some of the most joyous days of their lives. I don't know how to tell you anything about that other than true love always leaves something behind. Let me tell you, today is a day in which our nation celebrates fathers. So if I can, I would like to tell you about one father. He's actually a hero of mine. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards graduated from Yale uh, Divinity School at 20 years old. That's not college. He finished that at 18. He finished divinity school at the age of 20, got his first call to the ministry. His grandfather was a longtime pastor in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts, and said, uh, uh, come work for me. And the church called him as the, their assistant pastor. Now, granddad was pretty famous in of himself, Solomon Stoddard was a major player in the movement of the First Great Awakening, particularly in New England, and it swept Yale uh, Divinity School and caught the heart of Jonathan Edwards. And so he is out there. His grandfather's already 87 years old in this church, been, been in this church more than 60 years. 
Two years into the ministry, granddad dies suddenly. I guess not all that suddenly. But enough to where the church didn't know what to do. And so they said, well, well, here's Johnny. Kind of Johnny on the spot. And they elevate him to the senior pastor to replace the long-standing legend, Solomon Stoddard. And Jonathan Edwards began his ministry there, but I don't care. Even if you're Jonathan Edwards, it is hard to follow a legend. And so it's not long before the complaining starts and ultimately Jonathan Edwards, who was voted in to be the assistant pastor and the senior pastor, was also voted out by the same people. And he goes to live in a place called a Stockbridge, Massachusetts. That sounds uh, uh, a neat place, but it was on the frontier. And, and that's where you send people who aren't wanted. But it's there that we know so much about Jonathan Edwards because that's when he began to write. And he became way more famous for his writings than he ever did in his preaching, except for a couple of sermons. One of them, a very famous uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God that launched a revival in New England that was pretty significant. But what Jonathan Edwards is primarily known for is not his preaching, but his fathering. Jonathan Edwards and Sarah had 11 children. One of them, Susanna, uh, when uh, David Brainerd came down with tuberculosis, TB, uh, it is the Edwards family that takes him in. If you don't know who da- uh, John, uh, David Brainerd uh, was, he is considered the father of American missions. Literally, out of his diary that Jonathan Edwards publishes, thousands of missionaries hit the mission field, both here in the United States and around the world. And even today, that particular diary is still uh, read today. But he got very, very sick with tuberculosis and had to live with the Edwards family. And Susanna particularly took care of him and loved him. She fell in love with him, but he died of tuberculosis. But he left her a gift too, not only this diary, but also tuberculosis, and she died. Let me just tell you, over 150 years, he, he dies at the age of uh, 55 years old after becoming president of Princeton Theological Seminary, its first president. He arrives and he had gotten a, uh, a, a smallpox vaccine and the vaccine killed him. But in 150 years, out of his legacy comes one vice president, three senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 college professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 62 doctors, 75 army and naval officers, and 100 pastors. So I ask you men, fathers, when you're gone, what will you leave behind? What will be your legacy? Love always leaves something behind. Jesus, in chapter 16, has been telling his his disciples, he's leaving, he's going. In fact, it's going to get kind of rough for you. He says that they're going to kick you out of the the, the synagogues. and, And that happens within a few years after Jesus is crucified. And within a few more years, 
They began to die for their faith. And he says, they're going to kill you. And they're going to think they're doing it for the, as a service to God. That's exactly what they said about the martyrdom of Stephen. I think that is prophecy that it was fulfilled in their time. And he says, here's what I want to give you that's going to help you in the midst of what you are going to face in this world without me here. I'm going to give you three things. Three things that you need to have. It's kind of like my dad died 15 years ago. And when he died, he didn't have much. So my sisters, I have two sisters, got together and took all of my dad's important memorabilia that he kept and created five shadow boxes of stuff that was important to my dad to give to each of the kids so that we would have something that my dad left behind. In my shadow box are a pair of glasses that my dad wore. And here's one of my dad's legacy. I have his DNA. I can't see you without these corrective lenses that I wear. Because it's part of who my dad was. He couldn't see, and therefore I cannot see. My shadow box also has in it an incredible a timepiece. A piece that my dad... Uh, uh, wore as long as I can remember him. He had this uh, watch. He loved time and he, and, he, and he loved to keep time. My dad was never late. If we were late, it was the fact that he had six kids. Maybe some of you use that excuse on Sunday mornings as well. My dad also became a believer, follower of Jesus when I was about 15 years old after I was no longer in his home. And one of the things the person who led him to the Lord gave him was a Bible. And in those days, uh, this guy was also a Gideon. So it was a Gideon New Testament. And so it fit perfectly in my shadow box. It has all of the passages that my dad considered as important to him underlined with notes. Not a lot, because this is really small. And so you need the glasses to read (laughs) what my dad wrote. And it's sort of like that, that Jesus says, you're going to face things in this life. This world is going to experience things. But I want you to have these three things. I want you to have justice, because this world is filled with injustice. I want you to... I want you to have joy, an irrevocable joy that cannot be taken away from you no matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to this world, no matter what happens to your community or your family. I want you to have an irrevocable joy that no one can take away. And then last, he says, I want you to have peace. Not the peace that the world gives. I'm going to give you my peace. So let's look at those really quickly. We don't have long. But it doesn't take long to see what he gave us. Love always leaves something behind. The very first thing he leaves us is this idea of justice that comes from the Spirit. Look at, look at uh, again, I read to you, beginning in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is not to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He's going to convict the world. Listen, the word convict there means to cross-examine someone. It means to, to show someone where they are wrong. Often, the word helper, the word helper there means paraclete, and it's often translated counselor or helper or advocate. But it is more appropriately to be translated prosecutor. That the Holy Spirit comes into this world and looks at what is wrong with this world and prosecutes what it's done wrong. I don't mean that in a mean, judgmental way. There's just a lot wrong with our world. There is horrific oppression. And we don't even have to go very far. We can get in our cars and go down West Street and turn off of West Street into some of the neighborhoods and experience what they experience with real oppression. And oppression doesn't have to be one person oppressing another person. Just the system in which we live in that we have designed that in some ways gives great advantages and others robs advantages. And because we're not part of that race or neighborhood, we don't recognize the oppression. God says that will not stand. Justice is going to roll down like water and set it right. There's hatred. Hatred in this world of ethnicity against another ethnicity. Or even political. It's just a few days ago. A rabid liberal shoots a conservative just simply because he disagrees with his politics and he's afraid. We've seen the reverse. Rabid right has gone after a liberal just simply because we disagree. It's wrong. Justice is going to roll down. Like water. But not only hatred and violence and poverty. We're the richest nation on the planet. And we've got people who go without food. That's not only a sin. That's a travesty of the wealth of our nation. Thousands of people in our country don't just go without a meal. They have no hope of buying the groceries that they so desperately need. We started a war on poverty in 1960, but there are more people who are in poverty in our country today than there was when we started the war. God says, justice is going to roll down like water. Prejudice and racism. You, we tend to think that because it is present, it has always been here. And worse, it is always going to be here. And neither are true. Prejudice and violence and hatred and injustice. They came because of the fall and they will leave when God makes all things new. 
Frederick Douglass said, our own Frederick Douglass, where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails, and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organized uh, conspiracy to oppress, rob, and degrade them, neither persons nor property will be safe. We tend to think because we're not of the class, we're not of the race, we're not of the neighborhood that that experiences the oppression, we're safe, but no one is safe. Unless everyone is safe. Law and order, this is Martin Luther King Jr., law and order exists for the purpose of establishing justice. And when they fail in this purpose, they become the roadblock themselves. God sees the oppressed. And he hears the afflicted. That's what the Psalm 10 says. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen the heart. You will incline your ear and do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Don't you understand? I don't know how long it's going to take. But we can passionately and consistently pray that justice will roll down like the waters and righteousness like the ever-flowing stream that is coming. Until that day, you and I can stand against the injustice that we do see, stand up for the oppressed, relieve poverty, work to the end of violence, name the hatred that we see for what it is, sin. Even when Christians are the haters. You see, we've got a great legacy. The Holy Spirit has come to convict, to tell the world where it is wrong about sin and righteousness, and judgment. Our God will fix what is broken. But also he gives joy. Here's a little better note. And that is this. In a little while you will not see me, in verse 19. He's talking about the cross. He's going to die. And he's going to say the world, in verse 20, is going to rejoice when I'm gone. Because they misunderstood why I died. The Jewish leaders and Pilate are going to be glad because there's going to be one problem that they don't have anymore. The world system that has rejected Jesus, because here's the issue about why the world systems reject Jesus. Because if Jesus is who he said he was, Lord, then we, the creatures, must submit. Always before you give great, great um, a praise to Al and Nancy Strong, please understand this. It wasn't their idea to start divorce recovery, a fresh start. It wasn't their idea to start marriage preparation for those who want to get married. It was the Lord's and they were just willing to submit to the will of God. The question is, will we? Because that is where joy is, when we are willing to submit to our Lord. He says that, and again, this is verse 19, 
in a little while, you will see me again. He says, they're going to kill me and they're going to rejoice, but I'm going to rise again. And when I rise again, it'll be your joy. It'll turn your sorrows into joy. The source of our joy is the resurrection of our Jesus. Don't you understand? When the church wanted to prove that Jesus is Lord, who he said he was, and he did accomplish what he accomplished, it is finished. When they wanted to approve that, they didn't build crosses. The crosses are hundreds of years from coming into the church. They talked about the resurrection. That our Redeemer lives. He's no longer dead, but alive. And the fact that they were followers of his was proof that they didn't follow a dead God, but a live one. And that was a source of their joy, no matter the fact that people were taking their homes, they were putting them in prison and making their children orphans. You know that when they put the Christians into the lion's den, when they put Christians into the Colosseum, they sang. Because they had a joy that was irrevocable, that man could not cut off. Why? Because they couldn't, the resurrection proved that Jesus cannot be taken from them. But it also is proof that we cannot be taken from Jesus. Jesus says in verse 22, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. We long for the day when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And takes all the brokenness, all the injustice, all the, all the things that have made this planet a hard place to live. And makes them all new. And you say, but Bruce, Christians die too. Of course we do. But we don't stay dead. You can put us in the ground. But we're getting out of the grave. Sailors. You might die at sea and they might bury you there and the fish might eat your body. But God doesn't need your body to resurrect it. To make it new. People are afraid of of cremation today. I got news for you. God's not limited by putting you in a vault where all that's left of you is some cremated dust. Death, you have no sting because we don't stay dead. Grave, you have no victory because we don't stay in the grave. Just as Jesus is alive, we live. That's why in Romans 8, Paul will launch out after this great testimony of the gospel and see that, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything can separate you, can separate me from Christ Jesus, our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus is the source of our irrevocable joy that has been given us. And then last, peace. Peace. Do you see that? Verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. But there can be no peace without truth. Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite writers, she's a southern writer who writes about southern customs. If you want to laugh, read one of her novels. 
She was a Southerner and wrote about Southerners. And she often got critiqued by New York Times uh, editorial pages. And one of the things that they didn't like about her was she often wrote about Southerners' faith. And she would write her own faith into the stories. And this is what one critique uh, critic said. Christian orthodoxy is a hindrance to artist expression. She writes back to the New York Times, the job of an artist is to understand and show what is. If there is no truth, you don't need an artist. All you need is a Gallup poll. If there is no truth, there can be no peace. But not truth in general, truth specific about Jesus. About Jesus. For the Father, this is verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. You see what he's saying? He says, it's not just believe in in all truth, but specifically that I've come into this world to save you. That my death accomplished your victory, your salvation, and that my resurrection guarantees yours. And that I'm going to return and make all things new. And then he says in verse 31, but do you believe? You see, it's not just believing in truth and it's not just believing, it's not just a a truth about Jesus, but do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you trust the truth about Jesus? Do you dare to live as though those truths are real? And dare to love the way Jesus loved, the way Al and Nancy has loved us well. The way that so many of you love so many well. Today is Al and Nancy. Tomorrow could be another 100 to 200 of you. Let me end by telling you one more father story. Because I want to show you that you can have peace. Because it's one of the three things that Jesus left us behind. And love always leaves something behind. His name was Horatio Spatford. He and his wife had four daughters. He was a lawyer from Chicago. And he had some business, but he he was going to spend the summer uh, touring Europe with his girls and his wife and sent them on ahead to New York and then onto a ship to Europe. And somewhere between the United States and England, the ship sinks. And Horatio gets a letter from his wife. It's just a telegram, and it only simply reads this. All lost, stop. Only one left, stop. She comes uh, back home, and this is uh, 1873, and they sit down together and they write a poem. To grieve by art, which is what art can help us do. To the process, the loss of their only children. And so they write, it is well with my soul that later is put to music in 1876 by Philip Bliss that the church still sings today. But listen to how he processes the truth and believes the truth that gives him peace. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot. Can you imagine writing those words alone? Whatever my lot. He's not talking about going to the grocery store and running out of money or getting robbed. He's talking about the loss of his four girls. 
They always taught me to say it as well with my soul. Where in the world does he get that kind of peace? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let the blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Do you hear the truth? He's rolling it. He's rolling it in his heart because right now the heart is filled with sorrow that he wants replaced by joy. My sin, oh, bless this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. He's going to the truth about Jesus. And then he ends with this verse. Oh, Lord, haste the day. When the truth shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He believes the truth about Jesus and that is where his peace comes from. He's not denying his daughters died and that he will never see them in this life again. His heart is full of pain and loss. But he takes it to the truth about what Jesus has done. And that produces in him an irrevocable joy and a peace. To know that in the end, justice is going to roll. And all that has been wrong in this world will be made right. Do you see what your Savior has left you? Do you see the justice and the joy and the peace that your love has left behind for you. I hope so today. I don't know how anyone can face the things we face today and not have those three things that come from Jesus, the lover of our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. We need, I need this truth. As I think about the losses and the, the breakage, as I open electronically the newspapers I read, the magazines watch the news, I, if it wasn't for your promise that the Spirit is going to convict this world and make everything right that is wrong, I would just lose hope. If it wasn't for the fact that Jesus is alive that you raised him from the dead, I would have no irrevocable joy. My joy would come and go based on the circumstances of my life. And if there was no truth that it is finished, that my debt is paid, my sins are gone, and that one day Jesus will return, then I wouldn't have no peace. I pray, Heavenly Father, that that becomes the inheritance of our hearts and that what has filled our hearts with sorrow will might be filled with joy and peace and justice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.